Dear Jason, in writing this letter to you, I'm taking part in that perhaps greatest of Southern traditions, the drive to tell a story and put into words the significance beneath the symbol-laden surface of Southern life. But when I take stock of the stories being shared from the modern country music scene here in Nashville, I'm struck by the monotony of the messages in these songs that reduce to cheap sentiment the complexities of Southern life. How is it that in a land like the South that has produced some of this nation's finest folk of letters from our writers, musicians, and our blues poets, has found itself so flat-footed for a fresh turn of phrase to express its own native land? What does it say when our language stands stifled before the symbols of Southern myth-making? How could language, informed by a true empathy and curiosity towards our silenced inner lives, lead to a greater clarity of the past and present South? How can we, as Southerners, wean ourselves free from the lost cause that still haunts us? How can peace, with our still massive past, lead to a future wellspring of the stories we allow to tell in our songs? Best, Adia Victoria. Welcome to Call and Response from Sonos, the show about the communal spirit of music making and listening. I'm Adia Victoria. I'm a musician, a poet, and a writer based in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Black woman from the Deep South, leaning into the blues to make sense of this world. Today on Call and Response, my interview with Jason Isbell. Daddy said the river would always lead me home But the river can't take me back in time And daddy's dead and gone Jason is a singer-songwriter from Green Hill, Alabama and one of the keenest storytellers and Southern voices of our time. Through his music, Jason looks back at his own past and examines it in a way that is not nostalgic or steeped in romanticism. He is at once critical of the land that raised him and he writes about it with empathy. And what a time to be doing this kind of examination of the South. Crowds cheered as workers lifted the 12-ton statue of its graffiti-covered pedestal, the monument of the Confederate general. In what was once the capital of the Confederacy had stood for more than 130 years, put up a generation after the war. The, the day before we recorded together, the monument to the Confederate general Robert E. Lee was removed in Richmond, Virginia itself a symbol of the contradictory story the South tells about itself. We are a land of eternal contradictions. Every statue that comes down is an exercise in looking back at history in search of truth. And this is what Jason Isbell does in his music. So today on our show, I'll be sitting down with Mr. Isbell to talk about how he searches for truth, how art can meet us in this moment, and how the spirit of grace and empathy allowed him to reflect on his identity as a white Southern man. And this is exactly the kind of honest self-reflection of the past that has been so long suppressed and silenced by Southerners, white Southerners in particular. Now, for every episode of Call and Response, I put together a playlist inspired by the conversation you're about to hear. This fall, Jason was invited by the Ryman to play a series of shows and has in turn invited so many women that I admire in the Americana music scene to open for him each night at the Ryman. 
So this playlist is going to be a little preview of the residency that is about to snatch the Ryman's wig, y'all. Women like Brittany Spencer, Mickey Guyton, Alan Russell. And rounding out this playlist, I'm going to share a little song that Jason and I collaborated on uh, off my latest album, A Southern Gothic. So definitely keep an ear out for that. Y'all can listen to that playlist over at mixcloud.com slash Sonos. We'll leave a link to it in the show notes. And now, here's my conversation with Jason Isbell. Jason Isbell, can you hear me? Adia, I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear, Captain. How you doing? I'm good today. How are you? I'm I'm getting along, you know? Yeah. Getting, getting by. Good. <laughs> We're both uh, members of the Nashville music community. We're both giving it the community college tryout here in these streets. (laughs) And I love the way that you interrogate modern country, the way that it is so small in its outlook and conservative. And I think when I look at so much country music, I see the Southern tradition of glorifying the symbolism of the songs. You know, they're not just talking about a beer and a, a pickup truck and, you know, girls and denim. Like these are symbols of something. But what often goes unexamined, I feel like in modern country is the subtext of the symbol, like mm-hmm. using it to maybe uncover some greater aspect of our relationships with the South or like the white Southern male relationship with the South. Like they're stuck on the symbol. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know because it's easy. They know people get it. There's a problem when you get to, to the point to where the, the, the capitalism that's involved in a creative pursuit starts Mm -hmm. to take the driver's seat, you know, and, and I think that started a long time ago. I mean, the Nashville sound and, and the sort of popularization of country music really kicked it into high gear. Uh, but they didn't know. They, did, they didn't know then that, that you know, what they were birthing. Chet Atkins didn't realize that, that it would manifest itself as this all these years later because right. he, didn't, he didn't know that that one very specific targeted narrative was going to be the one that was pushed at all costs, no matter what. And we've got to a point now where it's like, well, we know white males will buy this song. If this song sounds like this, if we hit this button, $20 comes out. I'm just going to keep hitting this button. I mean, I think it's top down. You know, you start with a system that serves one story. You're going to wind up telling one story at the end of the day. And all the songs are going to have the same images, the same ad nauseum until there's until irony is impossible. Yes. You know, that uh, kid from Alabama that has the Applebee's song right now. You know the song I'm talking about? This song is called Fancy Like. Yeah, we fancy like Applebee's on a date night. Got that Bourbon Street stay with the Oreo shake. Get some whipped cream on the top, too. It's a bad song. It's very catchy. It's very catchy. I oh, understand yeah. why it's big on TikTok and all this stuff. Oh, but yeah. but the the shark of irony has been jumped because these same images have been used so many times over and over and over that nobody even registers. It doesn't matter if you meant it ironically or not with with, yeah. with popular, you know, bro country music. It doesn't matter. That doesn't exist anymore. There is no irony anymore. Because it's been just force fed that same story and that same narrative. And it gets even worse when they try to talk about the struggle of the white Christian heterosexual oh, no. male Ooh, in country music. Ooh, you know? Ooh. I mean, look, I mean, 
I remember working at this little spot downtown years ago called Never Broken Egg. And I was, I was just in the, the dining room setting up for the day and we played mainstream country music. And I remember listening to the songs and thinking to myself, like all these songs, the narrative reinforces a particular worldview. And it is that of, like you said, the white Christian conservative rural seeming, even though these are like asshole millionaires writing these songs. Right. You know? <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> but I was thinking these songs are doing a, a work, like they're, they are meeting a political end. These songs are propaganda. And I had to wonder, like, what were the emotions that these songs were, one, trying to make the listeners feel, but also keep them from feeling? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think more the latter than the former. Okay. I, I, I think they're working harder to keep people from feeling things and keep them purchasing things myself. I, okay. You know, I, I think that's the trick because then they start calling it artsy. You know, when you when you have anything that means something, it's like, oh, yeah, that's that's a B-side. You know, that's right, that's right, right. that's Americana. You know, mm. that's that's not what we're doing here. We're trying to help people have fun. That's you know, right. we don't want to, they're like, we don't want to put politics in our music. Well, not probably, you know, yes, you do. <laughs> you That's know, right. you most certainly do. It's That's impossible right. to behave apolitically. First of all, that is not a possibility. First things first. Yeah. But, you know, by avoiding talking about anything that might make people feel something, or oh, you're making a very definite, very specific political statement, which is let's keep things exactly as they are at all costs. That's right. That's you know. right. I mean, it's like they want this kind of worldview and level of understanding to be set in stone in these people. And it's just constantly reinforced. And when I was reading about the way that you were um, going about the process of your latest album reunions, right? You were talking about how you struggled over the course of, you know, the creative aspect of this. And over the course of writing, you began to notice patterns in yourself. And I want to quote you on this. It was from NPR. You said, I started seeing the fact that I was going back in time and reconnecting, at least on a psychological level, with a lot of the people, a lot of the relationships that I had growing up and when I was younger and before I got sober. And you described after that kind of the the antagonistic, I guess, way that you view that part of yourself. And it's only been recently that you've been able to extend empathy and understanding to, you know, these situations, these parts of your life. But I thought about how radical it was hearing you talk about that because you never hear the issues of white Southern men emotionalized. And when you Mm. start talking about anxiety, you specifically said like, you know, it's that white Southern male feeling of always needing to be in control and the, the anxiety that arrives when you're not in control. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering if you can speak to that anxiety and, and how does this relate to the art that they're being fed, the narrative that they're being fed and that they've been fed of the South in their place? Yeah, so- that's a big question. I will attempt uh, to answer Sorry, that I, question. I have been waiting to ask you that question. Just no, that's a good, that is a good <laughs> question. You know, I think there's something there that is not, um, I think it's possible to know yourself and to love yourself and to still criticize yourself yes. regularly and consistently and continuously. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of people are afraid that if they criticize themselves or if they criticize the systems that are in place that have allowed them to get to where they are, or if they criticize the idea they have that they started from the bottom, then everything collapses and they are no longer a good and valuable person with an Mm. identity. And 
I think they are worried sometimes if I start to question this and I'm going to change. Uh, my identity is going to change. I'm going to be a completely different person. They discourage themselves from considering their internal struggle, their internal life, their anxiety about being that particular white Southern male. And I want to say there's another way. There's got to be a better way. I want to tell these guys, you can criticize yourself a lot and still be yourself and still exist and still be worth a shit, be worth even more of a shit if you work on improving your internal life and watch how it comes out in your words and your actions. Come you on know? now. Come on now. Y'all don't realize it was going to be like this today. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm a very, you know, I'm a very manly man. You know, sometimes to a flaw, like sometimes I have to like turn it down a little bit because I'm a big dude. I'm from Alabama. I played sports and shit. You know, I'm that kind of a of a dude. But um, but I still feel like that I, I, I deserve access to my emotional life. Come on. And I think I, I, I deserve progress in myself. Mm. I deserve to make progress on myself without losing the fact that I am valuable and that I am worth something. Um, And so all these songs are like, how do I improve myself? You know, how do I love myself and know myself and improve myself all at the same time? What you just said there was, those were all the components of, of empathy, you Mm. know, how, and growth. And, you know, I've seen interviews where you discuss, you know, the importance of empathy in songwriting to be able to, you know, consider um, another person's point of view, you know, extend that part of yourself, hold space for someone else. You know, I, and I, I consider the the Southern myth, I consider the Southern ideals of, of manliness and how it's so tied to domination. And it's like, can you truly have empathy for yourself and still maintain these beliefs? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a big one. Can you have empathy, not just for other people, but but for yourself? Can you feel the part, the parts of you that that you aren't the proudest of, or the right. parts of you, you know, because you have to understand him before you can change him, you know. Mm. And, and so, can why why do I feel like I'm this? Why do I feel like I should be in charge of this person's life, whether it's my wife or my kids or you know my employees or whatever? Why? Why am I doing this? Like, what is it about me that needs this? Am I on stage because, you know, I need people to love me? Or am I on stage because I I need community and communion, you know? Like, these things I question with myself all the time. And when it came time to sit in the house for a year and a half and -hmm. not go out and tour, you know, I I remember hearing a, a friend of mine say, I just miss the audiences, so much, you know, and I thought, what the fuck? Because mm-hmm, <laughs> I didn't mm-hmm. miss, I didn't miss the audiences. I, no. Like, what about the part where you levitate? You know, right? That's what I missed. What about the part where you and all your friends are floating together? That's right, in real time. You know, um, everything mm. else just contributes to that for me. But, but I had to question it. I had to sit with myself and empathize with myself and think, what do I need? What do I really need? And is there pathology in that needing? Yes. Ooh, God damn. Yeah. And I just started thinking about, you know, when you mentioned in that same interview about going back and interacting with these parts of your past, you know, holding space for them and all the messy, complicated, you know, 
ways that you have that you that you do that for yourself. I thought about the work that that is, and you said that you didn't do it from a place of nostalgia. And I just really started thinking about what is the difference between like genuine curiosity, engagement with your past, interrogation versus a nostalgia of one's past, yeah. personal and at a you know a social level, the South. Yeah, examination, isn't it? I mean, because nostalgia re- requires a lack of examination, you know, mm. to be nostalgic for, I don't know, the 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 flags and the dolls and the signs and the things that you see in certain antique stores that you only go in once and don't go back to, you know, that's nostalgia because there's no examination, mm. you know, but, but you can examine. I feel like if we went through, and I don't know if that we would ever do this. I don't know. I don't know if this would ever happen. I, my faith in people changes on a day-to-day basis, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, yesterday it was all right today. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know today. I don't know about y'all today, but, um, but you know, if we went through a period of really examining uh, the South and the history of the South in a way that was deliberate and scientific and we understood what happened and why see here's the problem though they they kept they kept that from becoming a possibility like no you're not supposed to know how to document this because they didn't want us sometime in the future to go back and go let's see what really happened right you know because they never wanted us to have more than nostalgia they never wanted us to have a real understanding of what the south was you know I'm seeing what's happening when white Southern men are being confronted really with the lack of that nostalgia yeah. being, you know, validated by us. You know, just yesterday, the statue of Robert E. Lee came down in Richmond. And, you know, I think, what does this do to the psyche of people who have not developed an identity beyond it? What are we facing down? You're kind, you're a kind soul. To think about that even for a second, you're a kind soul. Um, but you're right. Like, you know, once something is properly documented, it is no longer ammunition. Mm. You know, it's that bullet is dead, you know, like mm. they take that takes the gunpowder out. You got a you got a you got a blank, you got something that used to be a bullet. You know, so when we document, whether if it's our lives, when when we're writing a song about our own personal life and our own personal feeling, when I wrote Cover Me Up, mm-hmm. that after that, that that time in my life, that, that very specific thing that I was talking about in that song could no longer be used against me because I wrote the truth of it down and I recorded it and I magnetized it and it existed in the world as a document. So nobody gets to go back and fire that shot at me anymore, myself included. Someone needs medical help for the magnolias. They can't haunt you with that. No, because I know I got it right here. I got it written down right here and it all fucking rhymes. And I just sang it for thousands of people and they got it too, you know. That's the importance of documenting your own internal life and that is what i wish obviously could have happened with the south in real time because now what we're doing is forensic history Mm. you know now the best we can do is go back and try to recreate 
you know, from ashes and pieces. Right. You know, and that's hard. That's real hard. And people take things the wrong way. You know, people try to look at the picture before the bones are put together. You know, you mentioned, you know, you wouldn't need this worldview of you as the dominant, you know, force, the dominant class. If if we had allowed a more expansive view of, of exactly who we are, you know, and I'm I'm thinking right now specifically, you know, the change of representation and the demands that, you know, black folk are making in Americana and roots. And I recently was backstage at the Ryman for an event for John Lewis. And I remember looking on the walls and remarking on Twitter, like, everybody, I love this place. This is, this is sacred ground for me. This place is white as hell. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a place where I do not feel really part of the community. You know, we're so far from, from getting anywhere near right that it's kind of the great tragedy. Like, what, you know, what do you think country music would sound like right now if we'd handled it the right way the whole time? I mean, I mean you know those pictures on Twitter where they're like, uh, what the what what society would look like if Rihanna had put the record out by now? And it was like, right. be like a city from the future. You know, I feel like this would be country music if we just cut the bullshit out early on. Because because blues music is country music. Country blues. What is all this? What is That's all right. this? We're calling all this shit. These genres. You know, That's bluegrass. Right. Like, come on. Like, just that word is a is a wink and a nod. Bluegrass. That's right. You That's, know? right. That's right. Ooh. And. And I love all these types of music, but what if we had stopped fucking around with it from the start? What would it sound like now? How far would we have gotten, you know? I mean, I feel like, you know, what we're challenging now is like, come on, y'all, like just the whiteness of whiteness, you know, just the yeah. the blindingness of whiteness. And, you know, I thought back to that moment um, of feeling so isolated at the Ryman, you know, and recently you announced for this year's residency that you're uh, doing at the Ryman again, that you won't be having, you know, the sisterhood up there uh, warming the stage for you. And when I tell you, when I, yeah, I text you, I was like, bro, are you serious right now? <laughs> but let me just, you know, for posterity, let me just tell everybody that is coming out. So the first night we're following tradition and it's, it's uh, your wife, Amanda Shire. Amanda, yeah. She gets the Friday night. We made that deal a long time ago. I mean, look, you have to. She getting in. That's your queen. (laughs) But, all right, so following the the first night, we have Brittany Spencer, Mickey Guyton, Amethyst Kaya, Shamikia Copeland, Allison Russell, Joy Alakadin, and then some cat lady named Adia Victoria's (laughs) the final night. So, I just, I want to know, how did you arrive to, to that decision? When did that flip for you when you're like, yo, you know, I don't, I mean, I, this is going to sound like bullshit, uh, <laughs> but this is just what I'm into right now. You know, right. this is what we're listening to right now. These are just the people that we're listening to around the house right now. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm glad that it, that it's a bunch of, a bunch of black women that makes me happy, but also like, there's just all these people that I want to see and I want to come out and watch them play. And I want to be, uh, the person who's walking on stage after that. So feeling like I have to step my game up and also feeling just kind of surrounded by, you know, the beauty of something really cool that just happened on the same stage. Um, Yeah. See, I like that. Uh, It didn't, how you started that out. Like, why are y'all opening? He's like, cause y'all got bops and I listened to him. Mm-hmm. That, that shit slaps. And I, and I love that. It doesn't feel like, and now for a very special episode. of <laughs> <laughs> Ryman residency. Right. Right. <laughs> 
it doesn't man. it doesn't have to feel like a a, a negotiation or a, a teachable a concession. Moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. It doesn't have to feel <laughs> like that. It can feel like rock and fucking roll. You know. Yo, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I want to ask you. I mean, there's been so much cool shit that's uh pop it off with you. I feel like you're having a, a cultural moment. <laughs> you, know, you keep popping up like everywhere. You like, where's Waldo? Like one minute you interviewing Dr. Fauci. Mm-hmm. And then the next minute I see you with Martin Scorsese, you know, mm-hmm. and you and Sturgill. And what was really funny was the other day, my mom loves billions and you popped up. She's like, ain't that your friend? That's that guy. That's that dude. That's that guy. So yep. what, I mean, man, first of all, tell me about what's it feeling like knowing you got to be on the big screen like it's a little scary what is that it's a little bit scary but it's good it's a good scary like so i get to to oklahoma to do killers of the flower moon and my first scene my first day there i sit there for like eight hours and then i have a scene with uh dicaprio and so i'm i'm just so scared i just sit there and i'm worrying about it all day and i go in and it's marty and marty's like okay jason come over here's what we're gonna need you to do and he's like calling action himself he's like okay action jason i didn't know he was gonna be saying that like i thought there would be some (laughs) other dude you know he means action (laughs) oh yeah he means i gotta do what he's like he's saying that he's looking at me marty (laughs) is looking at me um you know so after like it felt great because I was terrified and nothing was about to eat me. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like if I go on stage, I know I'm not going to fuck it up. If I forget lyrics, I just play some kind of lick or something. It's fine. Right. <laughs> but in this situation, I was like, I could be terrible at this. And they could be like, you got to go home. You yeah, suck. Uh, you know, we tried. She yeah. Tried. <laughs> yeah. Like Leonard Cohen was bad at it. Like who the fuck am I to think I can go? You know, he was on Miami Vice and they were like, never come back here ever. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> don't you show your face <laughs> yeah you know luckily i was around all of these uh um like first nation actresses who were like professional actresses playing a group of osage sisters but they had come from different tribes from all over north america like vancouver and montana and you know they were they were Cree and Blackfoot and they were different tribes, but they were all playing this group of Osage sisters who the story revolves around and they were so good. And, and, you know, so I just spent a lot of time with them and, and asking them questions. And when they would cry on command, like I saw that they weren't acting, they were going somewhere, you know what I mean? Like they were, so they had to keep themselves that close to all the sadness and all the trauma and all the bad shit in their life. So they could just reach and open that door when they needed it for a scene. And so I was so impressed by that. I was like, Oh, you haven't taught yourself to cry. You've taught yourself to go back to your mom's funeral. You know, like there's so much more to it than I uh, assumed going in. So I learned a lot, especially uh, from those women, like, uh, you know, just watching them work and, and, and seeing how they delivered that story. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people there who were like Osage, uh, who were playing their grandparents and their 
aunts and uncles and their great grandpa. Yeah. And I mean, it was really emotional for them. And that was really the best part of it for me was, was watching them uh, tell that story and helping them tell that story on such a broad scale, you know? I see this all as part of the larger project of, you know, so many memories that have been made private of people that have been oppressed. This work is, it seems like it is, the integration of our private memory into public mm. memory. And then I, I think only then can true reconciliation begin. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And that's begin. Yeah. That's begin. That's just the start of it. But first you got to tell the truth. Tell the fucking truth. You know, you don't, you don't start with step nine in the <laughs> yes. Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't start apologizing. You got to figure out all the shit you did first. You even did. Yeah. Ooh, and really face it. And, and know why you did it. And then you get to step nine. Then you got to call everybody, you know. Um, but it is something that it could have happened before now, but it wouldn't have. You know, that story, just like so many of the stories that we're hearing now in music and in film and on television, you know, it, it's it's certainly not enough. But we're hearing a lot of the stories now that would not have been allowed to come out up until this point. So I was really happy to be part of one of those. All right. So before I let you go, I got to get the intel. I got to get it from everybody I talk to. Is there a song right now that is giving you light and life on your journey? Um, yes. Which one would it be? I'm going to go with Freddie King's Hideaway. That's what I'm going to go with. Thanks, Adia. That's it. All right. Um, Thank you so much. And I'll I'll be seeing you around. All right. I'll see you real soon. We're going to have some fun. Y'all, that was Jason Isbell. His latest album is Reunions. And you can hear him on my uh, new single, You Was Born to Die, on my latest album, A Southern Gothic. As the season goes on, on Call and Response, we're going to continue to interrogate the South. I I want to hear about where you're from. I want to know what songs have pushed you to pull back the curtain on the dominant narrative surrounding wherever you grew up, wherever you were born. I carried a lot of these questions with me over the course of the, the writing and the creation of my record of Southern Gothic. And now I want to hear from you. I want to hear all about it. You can hit us up on Instagram or Twitter at Sonos Radio. I'm Adia Victoria across all social media, and I am all ears. And this has been Call and Response from Sonos. Y'all, thank you so much for joining us this week. You can listen on Sonos Radio or find us at Mixcloud.com Sonos. I want to invite y'all, if anything about the show touches you or sparks a curiosity with you or even conversation within you, to please share it with folks. Help us grow our community. Help us, you know, expand this conversation. I do believe that a lot of the issues and troubles we face comes down to the point that we surround so much of ourselves in silence. So spread the word, you know, open up to folks. Let them know that we are out here doing this work of building community through the blues. The show was produced by Work by Work. 
Scott Newman, Gemma Rose Brown, Anne Maria Wad, Daniel Rizel, and by me, Adia Victoria. The show is mixed by Sam Baer. So until next time, y'all, keep your heart and your ears wide open. Y'all be good.